welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us today. There are many things to love about this industry, but one of the things that I really love is the potential that it has to take you on a journey and enable you to go off in all sorts of different directions, whether it's as an educator, a salon or school owner, an editorial hairdresser, or to work in the product sales or corporate side of the industry. My guest today is Jason Yates, who has made the journey from starting out as an apprentice hairdresser in a salon in Stoke-on-Trent, which is a city in the north of England, and he now lives in California and is, at 46 years of age, the global president of John Paul Mitchell Systems. Now, to put it mildly, that is one heck of a journey, and I don't know of anyone else who is now president of a global company that turns over in excess of a billion dollars that started out sweeping the floor and shampooing hair. In today's podcast, we'll talk about Jason's journey to the top, as well as the importance of saying yes to opportunities, the importance of having mentors in your life, the future of product distribution in the professional salon business, leadership, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Jason. Hi, Anthony. It's great to be here. Good to see you, my old friend. It is fantastic to have this opportunity to talk to you and to be able to ask you all those sort of questions that I wouldn't be able just to sidle up to you and ask. So I'm really excited about this. Okay, I, I want to I start off. I'm going to throw you a curveball right from the get-go here. Um, do you remember a time in your life where you had to make a decision? And now when you look back at it, you realize that you made a really good decision. So what I'm asking you is, what was it? And why was it the right decision? Well, there's been a couple of really big decisions. Three decisions um, in my life were really big for me. Uh, the first one I chose not to do. The second two I chose to do. And the second two were a direct result of not choosing the first opportunity. So uh, I, I would say the biggest of the three was my decision to move to America to come and work for a product manufacturer on a handshake and leave a career that was well-established in the UK where I was um, managing 22 hair salons and I've been there since I was 15. So it was a big decision for me to just leave on a handshake. Yeah. But I did it, I went for it, and I never looked back, so. Good, fantastic. Okay, well, we're going to dig into some more of that, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's just start with an overview of your background. Um, just a quick, you know, I'm going to give you the mic. Uh, uh, who okay. is Jason Yates? Give us, give us your sort of two-minute backstory, and then I'm going to dig into it. Yeah, two-minute backstory, because I know we're on the clock here, and then I'm going to dig into all the good bits. So over okay. to you. Okay, you got it. So Jason Yates, uh, born in Stoke-on-Trent, proudly, uh, United Kingdom. Um, I left the UK at 27, but my working career started at a very well-known group of salons in the Stoke-on-Trent area called John English Hairdressing. 
And I started there as an apprentice when I was 15 years old in 1990. So uh, that that was terrific. I spent uh, 12 years working there behind the chair, worked my way up from uh, apprentice all the way to running all the salons when I left at 27. Yeah, so pretty crazy. Yeah, okay. Um, All right. So I, I love a success story. There's nothing like a good success story. And your journey from a 15-year-old apprentice in the north of England to president of John Paul Mitchell Systems is an exceptional success story. So let's go back to where you started and dig in a bit deeper, because what I want is I want that young, they wouldn't be 15 anymore. I want that young 18-year-old version of you today who might listen to this I want them to understand what is possible, but I also want them to see and understand the journey that you've been on. So let me start with that question. Why did you get into hairdressing? Why did this 15-year-old kid decide hairdressing is where I belong? Yeah, so I guess I'll give you the honest answer. (laughs) Yeah, that would be helpful. Yeah, (laughs) so honestly, uh, I I was 15 years old, didn't particularly like school, Um, knew I wanted to work, Um, came from a very working class uh, family, so college was never even a discussion or an option. Uh, So I knew I needed to work, and I I wanted to do something. Um, I didn't see myself in an office. Ironically, I ended up in an office in the end. But I, I wanted, I was always creative. I wanted to work with my hands. I loved people. And uh, the local barbershop that I that I was going to at the time, I was about 13 or 14. The barber there kind of impressed me. I, I kind of looked up to him. I thought he was a cool guy. He was very popular. Everybody knew him. And uh, that kind of got me interested. And in, in my first direction is, well, maybe I'll go and work in this local barbershop when I when I uh, finish school. And I talked to my parents and I got some great advice from uh, from my mother. And she said, listen, I'm fully supportive. If you want to you know, learn a trade, learning a trade is something that's great. You'll always be able to put food on the table. And, you know, if, if this is something you really want to do, do it. But what I'm recommending you to do is go to the very best salon. Don't go to the local barbershop. No disrespect to the local barbershop. Uh, and the, the gentleman that owns that barbershop still owns it 30 years later and it's been very successful. But my mother said, you really need to get a good education. Go to the best place. So she took me to interviews at two of the most prestigious salons in the Stoke-on-Trent area. And they were both groups of salons. There was one called Francesco Group, which I don't know if you know, Anthony. I think that's yeah, still, I know the, yeah, still around. Still there. And yeah. John English. And I was a 15-year-old kid, never didn't know what I was getting into, went for my interviews. and. Uh, got offered apprenticeships at both places and happened to choose John English. And I, I, I really never looked back. You know, I, I, the minute I got in there, I was, so there was two types of apprenticeship that I remember at John English. There was a paid apprenticeship, which they got treated a little bit better. And then there was the YTS. Um, so I, I took the YTS for those of you listening, don't know what YTS is. It's a youth training scheme. The government-funded program in my pay was twenty-nine pounds and fifty pence yeah. a week. Yeah. So uh, it was a great living, and that seemed like a lot of money at the time. Until my mum made me pay rent, and I had to pay for my bus pass. There wasn't much left, but yep. you know, it it was great, and it was really, really important to find a good home where I really had a tough training. Um, and I think the year that I started my apprenticeship, I think there was like thirty apprentices. 
and only about five made it through the actual course because it, it's tough. You know, it's, yeah. it's a long process. They don't get paid much money. And it really weeds out who really wants to be a hairdresser, which I think is important. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay. So you started off there as, a, as an apprentice. Um, you know, you did all the training. You then got on the floor as a stylist. Next step was what? Salon manager? Yeah. So um, the, the great thing was, is they had multiple salons and they also had a couple different business models. They had mm. um, John English hairdressing salons. Then they, they had a premium salon that they called the head gardener, which I always thought was a kind of a cool name. And then they had a barber shop as well called Pruners. And uh, they kind of gave me time in each business, which kind of taught me um, the different types of business models, different pricing. And uh, I, I learned different skills. So First, I started in the John English hairdressing salons, which was their core brand. It made up the majority of the 22 locations. And I started those uh, and finished my apprenticeship, got on the floor as a junior stylist. And from an early, early age, uh, they, they had a lot of competitions and contests where they recognized employees internally and they had a great culture. I won YT student of the year in 1990. And, uh, you know, I always, when I won that first year, I was like, wow, you know, I, I, I can really do well in this job and do well in this industry if I just get my head down. And, and, and those days, really what got you recognized is retailing. You know, if you were an apprentice that could retail and actually make them some money, the owners of the salon, they, they were very interested in that. So I saw that as a way to kind of grow my career quickly. So as soon as I finished my training, um, they made me a junior stylist. And quite quickly, I, I built up my book. And from there, before they made me a, a full-blown stylist, they moved me to the barber shop. So that was actually, for my education, really good because I, I, I was a pretty okay hairdresser when I finished my training. But actually learning men's really helped me understand um, shapes and forms and uh, just it, it took my level of haircutting skills to the next level because I've got the background of, of learning how to cut ladies' hair and then really understanding from a barber how to approach um, men's haircutting, I felt like made me a better ladies' cutter after. So I spent about two years in the men's, and then I went uh, to be an assistant manager at the ladies again and John English hairdressing. And then by the time I was 20, 21, they made me a manager of one of their smaller locations. And then uh, I also got involved in education you know, we would be responsible for training all the new apprentices. Uh, twice a week, we'd have model night where we would, you know, have them bring in models. And, you know, I took that responsibility on and I enjoyed it. Um, and it just really kind of grew quickly from there. Um, so by the time I was 23, 24, I actually got to manage their flagship salon, their, their largest salon, which had three stories, about 70 employees. So, you know, in my early 20s, I had a lot of responsibility and uh, probably wasn't ready for it, but uh, learned a lot about how to manage people by making a lot of mistakes along the way. But uh, it was really, it, it was a great experience. So that was kind of how I got started in my behind the chair career. Then another kind of key thing that happened in my career was um, I entered a competition. I'd, I'd never enter the competition in my life. And actually the managing director of the salons encouraged me to. We were a Schwarzkopf salon at the time. <laughs> and uh, the competition that I entered was Young Hairdresser of the Year. It was basically anybody under 25 could enter if they were working in a Schwarzkopf salon. And uh, you submitted a photograph 
uh, along with a description of um, what you'd done. And based on that, you got invited to competition floor. And uh, I got invited to the competition. I remember it was in Birmingham and we had 45 minutes. We pre-done the color work. We had to do a cut on the floor, finish. And then they interviewed everyone. And I won the competition. <laughs> like there was a hundred yeah, people. Yeah. I, I right, won it. Yeah. And there was, there was 10 people that were chosen from that. And the prize for that, and this is why it's significant, was to be on their young artistic team for a year. So that thrust me onto the platform, onto the stage. And now I was learning how to educate from a platform. And that tied me into a product manufacturer for the first time. And that, that was significant. Um, you know, I was terrible on stage when I, when I was so nervous and so shy. I couldn't speak. Uh, the, the usual stuff when you've had no yeah, experience yeah, and no yeah, training. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, you learn as you go. And uh, it was really a terrific year-long tour of the UK and we actually did some stuff in Europe as well and uh, got to meet a lot of other terrific hairdressers got to do some work with the British Fellowship of Hairdressing as well and uh, all that before I was 25 years old so it was really terrific um, then towards the end of my time with Schwarzkopf um, you know you didn't get paid to do this it was just by invitation only yeah, sure. uh, they were showing interest in me and wanting me to maybe have a full-time role with Swatchkoff, which would have meant me moving to Aylesbury. They were in Aylesbury at the time. And uh, I decided not to take that opportunity, which I kind of regretted after a couple of years after. Uh, I chose it for personal reasons. I was in a relationship. I was like, um, I don't want to go to Aylesbury. And after that opportunity had closed and I saw the salon that I was working in, I'd gone about as high as I could. Uh, what's next for me now? You know, I've turned down a great opportunity with a manufacturer where my career could have gone into a whole different direction. But uh, so, anyway, so were, you run, were you running the whole group at that time? You were no, at, at that time when I was uh, 24, 25, I was training pretty much responsible okay. for training and writing the curriculums. And I was running their biggest flagship salon um, yeah. towards the end. My last couple of years there, uh, I started to be like the area manager for all the salons and I would drive around and I would start to have clients in each salon and spend the day there yeah. and keep rotating. So that was kind of um, when I left there, that's what I was doing. But okay. uh, what, what made me leave was the, the second big opportunity of my life. So it, it's, it's a little bit of a complicated story, but at the same time, we were a Schwarzkopf salon going back you know, to my early 20s now, I was behind the chair managing the salon. We also um, would go to trade shows and we went to uh, the London show and uh, we saw an American company that was very new at the time called Farouk Systems. Uh -huh. They had an invention called Sunglets, which yeah. was an ammonia-free highlighting system that, that their whole marketing positioning was you can do a highlight service in somebody's lunch break. You know, it's yeah. quick, it's ammonia free, it's very visual and colorful, and it's going to create a buzz in the salon. And we saw uh, Farouk Shami, the little uh, guy um, from America that was five foot two on a, on a platform, screaming and shouting and painting everybody's hair a different color. You know, we were British, we were reserved, we were like, who's this crazy American doing? <laughs> and uh, we were gravitated to him and, and we went and watched him work. And I remember talking to the owner of the company and saying, this product's really cool. You know, we could do really well with this. If we bought it in the salon, it's unique, it's innovative, it's different. 
doing this in the salon is going to create a buzz. So, so we inquired about the products and Farouk was basically brand new in the UK. He'd got this company going for a couple of years with Sime, a little bit of product in America. And it's really his first appearance in the UK. And he said, I would love it if you would carry my products. And also, would you like to be my distributor for the UK? So we thought about it and we knew nothing about distribution, but we said, you know what? We have 22 locations. We have a warehouse. Sure, let's let's give it a go. Let's try it. So uh, that got me involved with another company that was a product manufacturer, but much smaller than Schwarzkopf in the US called Farouk Systems. So I became a trainer for them. Um, I helped the distribution model. Um, I had no clue what marketing was when I was doing it. <laughs> you know, I was creating stuff and I didn't even know that it was marketing materials. And, you know, I would go and cold call salons and, you know, talk to them about the products and also do a class on the spot. So that was really important because it kind of taught me a lot that helped me later on in my career because not only now that I got experience behind the chair as a salon, as a salon manager, as a platform artist, but now I was becoming a salesperson and a marketing person and a product person uh, mm -hmm. because of our distribution that we were trying to build. And you know, we we did pretty well from a company that wasn't a distributor to sell quite a bit of uh, Farouk Systems products in the UK. And what that got me is it it really got me the opportunity to get back on the stage with Farouk Systems in Europe. So Farouk Systems started a European artistic team and I was invited to try out for that. And uh, I got onto that team and we did a couple of shows a year, uh, one in the UK, one in Europe. And then from there in 2001, so this is a little bit later, I got invited to the US. So I'm about 11 years into my career now to do a hair show in the US. And uh, the company that I worked for said, great, this is terrific. Go out to the US, go do your show and come back. So I did the show and it was the first time I'd ever been to the US. So it was a bit of a culture shock uh, for me yeah. to say the least. Uh, for those of you that don't know what a US hair show is like, it's not like uh, a UK hair show, that's for sure. It's uh, very loud music, a lot of dancing. It's a production. It's a show. It's entertainment. It's not so much about education. So it was a bit of a shock, but I got to say it was kind of exciting. Uh, I got to do um, two days of demonstrations and shows, and I really enjoyed it. And by then, my stage presence was much better. I uh, I could do good work and, and, and talk to the audience about what I was doing. And I could also uh, engage them on the products that I was using. So when I finished the shows, um, Farouk Shami, the owner of the company, and by this time, 2001, about seven, eight years had passed. Now we've got quite a good-sized company in the U.S., and it was growing in Europe. He said, you know what, I, I've brought people over from Europe before and they always do beautiful haircuts and beautiful colors, but they can't sell. They can't talk about product. You, you're you a natural salesperson and, you know, I would love you to come out here and work for me. And this stage in my life, I was single. I'd been at uh, John English since I was 15. I was 27. And I remembered saying no, you know, maybe five years previously. And I thought you know what, I, this is such a huge move. What should I do? I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to the, the company and, and see what they think. So I talked to John English and I said, listen, I've been offered this opportunity. I don't think I want to go to live 
in the US at this stage. But I do want to know uh, if you'd support me going out there three, four times a year and allowing me to try it out a little bit more. And the answer that they gave me was really a big turning point in my life. They told me, no, absolutely not. You work for us. Uh, stop dreaming about going to be a big star in America. It's never going to happen. Remember where you came from. You're doing very well. You're managing these salons. You have a company car. You have a good salary. So I left that meeting and I was like, hang on a minute. I'm 27 and you're telling me how far I can grow in my career and that's it for me. Mm-hmm. So actually by they said, them saying no to me made me change my mind to I'm going to go for it. So I uh, yeah. went home, told my parents, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to go to America. I'm going to try it out. Let's see if it works. If it doesn't work, at least I won't have that feeling of why didn't I take that opportunity? I can go learn something. Worst case, I come back, I'll start my own business or find another company to work for. Yeah. So obviously my, my parents were excited, but also nervous for me because I didn't really have anything other than a handshake saying, I'll hire you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really have a, a, a recruiter to work with or a role description or a contract. So I called Farouk. I said, hey, I want to take you up on that offer. So I flew out there and uh, I got to the airport in Houston. Nobody picked me up. I took a taxi. This is after I quit my job and sold my house and moved on a handshake. Uh, I had one suitcase with everything that I I owned in that suitcase. I sold everything else. I went to the Farouk Systems corporate office in Houston and nobody even knew who I was uh, or why I was there. I eventually got to Farouk and he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Come on in. They hadn't started any paperwork for my visa. Um, I didn't have a place to stay. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, um, they were right at John English. I did have it good. What was I thinking? And I got to tell you, those those first few weeks, I was thinking I've made the biggest mistake ever. But I, I realized pretty quick. And, and this is what I love about America. It really is the land of opportunity. I realized nobody's going to, like, hand it to me and say, hey, Jason, this 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 is just what you need to do. But if you show initiative, you work hard, you look for opportunities to add value, you, you can make a name for yourself and you can make anything happen. And I really believe that. So I started at Farouk Systems and nobody knew what to do with me. So pretty quick, I asked questions. I just helped people wherever I could. Like, what can I do? You know, I'll answer the tech line. I'll, you know, help me understand the business, what you do and how I can help them. You know, after about six weeks, I started figuring out my place and they put me on the road in America. And I, I did a lot of shows, a lot of education. Uh, they hired me as my, my first title was artistic director. Um, I worked with uh, another artistic director that they had who kind of took me under his wing. And that's that's kind of how I got my uh, feet under the table with a manufacturer in America. And it was purely shows and education to start with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did that for about three four years solid okay i was gonna ask you and i think you i think you just answered it i was gonna ask you what is the biggest difference between the u.s and the uk well i think first of all there's a lot of similarities i think culturally there's a lot of similarities um but i I would say that I, i just felt like in the uk um it's it was a limit for me personally it was a lot tougher for me to go much further than i was at 
mean, yeah. I'm not saying impossible, but might mm-hmm. might have been tougher, might have been yeah. harder. Yeah. Uh, in the US, just just things opened up for me. Um, mm. You know, I do think some of it's the right time, the right place, but a lot of it as well is just just rolling up your sleeves and and hard work. But I do yeah. think you know, US is such a massive market. You know, it's just compared to the UK. There's just sure. so many more things you can do. And, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say culturally very, very similar. There's a lot of lot of similarities. But for me, the biggest difference is just career-wise, way more opportunities. Yeah. So so you spent the best part of three years on the road doing hair, doing shows. Nonstop, yeah. So what was know, the point I, I think, you transitioned to, to the sort of corporate thing? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I was used to being behind the chair you know, five, six days a week managing salons, uh, managing people. And I went to being, I wasn't managing anybody, trying to figure out when I was not on the road, what I could do at the corporate office to add value. And then when I was on the road, I was doing shows and education. So doing events, traveling, you know, previously I hadn't really done much traveling. Growing up, I don't think I ever left the country till I was like 20 years old, never went on a plane. You know, my, my holidays were driving to the seaside. That was, you know, Mm. Go to Landudno or Rill, and you know that was yeah, yeah. that was great for me. I didn't even know there was this whole world out there, yeah. and and the US is so vast and so massive. You know, I think I've been to forty five out of the fifty states. You know, mm-hmm. been to more states than most most Americans. But yeah. those first three four years, I really learned a lot. You know, and 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 got to learn how the industry works, and in America, how distribution works, how the swans work, how education works, and uh, I think. I, I did like 35 shows and you know a year so pretty much every weekend I was gone I did quite a bit of international stuff as well so I got to travel not just North America but I got to travel to Asia got to travel back in Europe which was cool um, so yeah it, it was good I did that for three to four years and then then I realized kind of a couple of things were going on a I didn't think it was sustainable I I, I enjoyed it but I was thinking I don't want to do this forever. It's it's too hard. You know, when I see people like Robert Cromans, you know, just amazing platform artists that have been doing a platform artistry for like 20, 30 years. I don't know how they do it. It's very taxing on the body and on the mind. And it's, it's I enjoyed it, but three, four years in, I, I decided I don't think that's sustainable. And uh, I wanted to know what else I could do. And my options were, do I go back to working in a salon in America, which I could probably do very well with, or do I try and reinvent myself and do something else with the corporation? And I was always good at educating and I was good at selling. So to me, the next natural step felt like sales. Uh, so I talked to Farouk and I said, he already had me involved in sales meetings, which for those of you that on on the podcast don't understand what a sales meeting is, it's really where a manufacturer has the opportunity to present all the products that it has to offer to salons to their distributors. So it's basically an opportunity to present to the salespeople. So um, I was already doing that as a platform artist. They used me a lot. So I said to uh, Farouk, you know, I'd, I'd like to get more focused in sales. I think I can bring more value to you in talking to distributors and getting them to buy more of our products and teaching their people how to sell more of our products. And I think Farouk saw that would be a better opportunity for him and me. So he got me involved with sales and I slowly started to move away from the shows and education world. And uh, my career progressed very quickly from there. 
Um, I was also very involved at Farouk because Farouk is a hairdresser himself. Uh, he would have me very involved in product testing and development and also marketing, you know, like, you know, what, what does the market need? Um, you know, what, what products should we develop? How do we position them? You know, what are the key attributes, features and benefits? So I was doing marketing again and sales kind of naturally. And it just progressed, especially when I moved away from shows and education and really focused on sales. The next step was marketing. And um, I joined Farouk in early 2002, um, did the shows and education thing till about early 2006. And by the end of 2006, he made me uh, VP of sales. So I was in charge of all the sales for the company, which was going from here to here, which was, again, maybe it was a little bit too soon, but uh, mm -hmm. I learned a lot along the way. And, uh, you know, I applied a lot of what I'd learned in managing people in my salon. It really helped me because one of the biggest challenges I had to overcome, I don't think it was ability. It was the fact that I was so young managing people who were much more seasoned than me. But I, I, I won their respect pretty pretty quickly by uh, just hard work and and, mm -hmm. and traveling and getting out in the field and spending time with them and with their customers. So I think yeah. that's an important thing is I'd, I'd say the biggest thing that's helped me be successful in my career is relationships, the relationships and following through and keeping your word. And if you say you're going to do something, you know, for sure, make sure you follow up and do it. That, that, that'll yeah. take you a long way. So. Yeah, I was uh, VP of sales at, at Farouk from 2006 to 2008. And then uh, in late 2008, they made me VP of sales and marketing for Farouk System. So again, uh, un unbelievable journey from being behind the chair to being a platform artist to being art director. And it's very rare that an art director goes to sales and marketing and, yeah, exactly. and ends, up, ends up leading it. So I, I was happy. I was at Farouk. I've been at Farouk almost 10 years. So we're now in early 2012, about nine years ago, um, when I got a call saying that Paul Mitchell uh, is interested in a, a marketing person, somebody to lead their marketing efforts. And uh, they want somebody that's... Before uh, you go on to that, sure. I just want to ask you, did you get any education? Like, did you, did you, were you part-time going to university to do a marketing degree or something, or you were just no. learning, this, you were no. just learning on the, on the job. So you yeah, so, don't have any degree in marketing or, or, or sales or anything. It's just like, so I'm just going to go and make yeah, My education stopped at, at 15 years old as, as far as academic. Um, you know, I, I do have my D32 and D33 and, you know, the, the MVQ level three and all. I okay, got yeah all of yeah. those qualifications, but no, to, to, to answer your question, everything is just on the job experience that university of life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good um, university. So, yeah, so, it, it, so it, is, it, is. it is. And let's get I, back I think, into that 2012, you get approached by, yeah. by and someone. Again, I'd, I'd like to just recognize, you know, the people that gave me opportunities because them themselves came from backgrounds where they didn't have much education they're kind of self-made. And yeah. again, what I love about the U S is, when I worked for Farouk, he was entrepreneurial, came to America with nothing and built a, you know, a very successful big company. And he gave guys like me that didn't have MBAs chance to run his company and, yeah. and manage lots of people and lots of business. So, you know, it's, it's, 
it's great and it's not typical in our industry you know no, most yeah. corporations that that they wouldn't trust hairdressers to run their business and what what i like about john paul mitchell systems is again jp he's an entrepreneur he he doesn't have anything past high school diploma uh he he gave me the opportunity to be the vp of marketing and you know i've, I've never looked back but going back to 2012 when that happened um, I was working at Farouk. I, I, I was happy, felt like my career was moving in a pretty good click and a good trajectory. But if, if I looked at all the competitors that I had at the time, I probably had the most admiration for Paul Mitchell. I, I always felt like they had such a terrific reputation and a very loyal following. The people that use Paul Mitchell products, they always say they bleed black and white. Like They have such a loyal customer base. And I was intrigued as to how did they do that? How did they accomplish that? So the more I learned about the company, they just have a rich, fabulous culture and heritage in the beauty industry. And when the opportunity arose and I, I got a call from the president of BSG, BSG is the largest distributor in North America and happened to distribute Farouk Systems products and Paul Mitchell products. And uh, he said, listen, uh, he said, I, I really rate you highly. I think you're a good stand-up guy. You're young. Um, you're very smart. I love to put good people with good companies. And I have this terrific company called Paul Mitchell who's looking for a good guy who's going to be their next VP of marketing. And I'd like to recommend you. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't looking. I, I, I was pretty happy. But I was definitely... Um, I was definitely flattered. excited about flattered. Yeah, okay. flattered and excited. Flattered. And, yeah, yeah, flattered. So I yeah. was flattered. I was like, wow, Paul Mitchell. And it's a VP of marketing, global marketing. Wow. So right now I'm VP of sales and marketing in a big company, but Paul Mitchell's a little bigger, more well-known, and happens to be in California, <laughs> Los Angeles. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit better than, than Houston. I love Houston. I love Texas. I have a lot of friends there. It's a great place. But I, I talked to my wife. I was newly married at the time. So I, I got married in the end of May 2012 and got this job opportunity. The way to my honeymoon is when I got called, which is kind of funny how the stars align and, and uh, that happens. But anyway, my wife encouraged me. She said, absolutely talk to them. And I said, yeah, but it's in Los Angeles. What would we do? She said, I'm a flight attendant. Don't worry about it. If, if this is right for us, we can move. Okay. So I have a call with uh, Luke Jacob Alice, who you know, Anthony, pretty well. He's been the president of John Paul Mitchell Systems up until recently from like 1989. I mean, it's just a great, great, great guy. I've learned so much from him the past nine years. And Michaeline DeJuria, who's now the CEO of, of Paul Mitchell, who's the daughter of John Paul DeJuria. So I had a phone call with them and just the natural connection right away. We talked for like an hour on the phone and it just felt really easy and nice. And from there, they said, come fly out and see us. We, we, we're serious about uh, getting to know you and, and, and let's have an interview, a formal interview. So I flew out to LA. I had the, really the first interview of my life, you know, because uh, the Farouk job kind of happened randomly. It was just a Hey, come work for me, you know, and mm. okay. And uh, John English had worked at since I was 15. I was an apprentice. Yeah, yeah. I, kind of, I was nervous, yeah. you know, so I, I got interviewed and the interview was like six hours. I got interviewed by Luke. I got interviewed by Michaeline. I got interviewed by John Paul DeJuria, the, the founder. And then they had every department head interview with me. And I'm like, 
this is interesting. Why, why do they want everybody to interview me? I'm not going to be necessarily working with these people. It made sense afterwards because the most important thing to JPMS, the most important resource is their people. They're really careful about who they hire. And it doesn't matter what your resume says, will you be a good cultural fit? And everybody, you know, the key department heads, you're going to be working with them. So what, how do they feel about you? What's the connection? So um, we had the interview and it went on a very long time and I enjoyed it. It, it was very nice, open conversation. And uh, Luke offered me the job on the spot and said, come work for us. We'd love to have you. I said, I'm very flattered. Uh, let me talk to my wife about it and I'll let you know. I, I flew home later the same day. So it was a long day. Got home and my wife said, you haven't stopped smiling since you got home. I think it's, you know, let's pray about it. I think it's the right thing. Let's do it. So that was the third big decision career-wise that I've ever made in 31 years and best decision I ever made. I mean, I really haven't looked back. It's a terrific company. The minute you get through the doors, there's something special that happens in that company. And I really believe it starts at the top with, with John Paul and Angus. So just such generous, terrific, caring people. And the most important thing to them is making sure you're happy. I mean, that was refreshing for me. I mean, every time you see JP, he always asks me, is there anything I can do for you? I mean, who does that? No, it's, it's, yeah. it's not what he can get out of you. It's what he can give you because he knows if you're happy and fulfilled, you're going to work very hard. And that's just, just been tremendous. And my almost, almost nine years now, Anthony, um, at Paul Mitchell, from 2012 to 2015, VP of marketing. Then in 2015, they made me VP of sales and marketing. And then from 15 to 17, they just kept giving me more departments. And I, I believe you were there when they announced me as COO, yeah, uh, which yeah. was December 2017. So within just over five years, they made me COO, which this will show my lack of academic uh, know-how. I didn't even know what a COO did, so I Googled it. <laughs> and it basically says number two at the company. You know, it's the person that's the heir apparent to the president. And, it, and at that time, our president, Luke, had, you know, he's in his early 70s now. Then he was in his late 60s. He'd already told me that when he retires, he would like me to take the reins, which I still pinch myself now. I can't believe this. Little, little boy from Stoke-on-Trent as a 15-year-old apprentice is uh, now the president of the most recognized, arguably, global brand in professional beauty industry. So, Well, well it's a, it is a, a billion-dollar-plus yeah. brand. I mean, that is huge. I mean, how, how big is it compared to the competition in, in terms well, of ranking and stuff? You know, we're, we're a privately held company, so, you know, we don't really divulge, but we're definitely – billion dollar plus in in sales um you know we're we're up there if you look at care and style we're number one in north america and have held that position in market share so we're very strong in care and style you know we're, we're leading with color now professional products is you know certainly high on my list of priorities for us to start to lead in we're in the top 10 in professional color product sales in north america as well i think there's a ton of upside for paul mitchell globally um you know, we're, we have a very good business in Europe and certain markets. We're very strong in the UK, very strong uh, in Germany and Italy. But there's a lot of opportunity across the globe, I believe, for John Paul Mitchell Systems to recreate what we've done in North America. I mean, in, in US, we're, you know, we're certainly up there with all the big boys. 
Yeah. Do you, do you ever feel because of what we I said to you before? Did you ever go to university? Did you get a marketing degree or a finance degree or whatever? You're now running as the president a company that that's doing over a billion dollars a year in sales. Now, now I know that you've got people around you, but do you ever feel that you know that you often hear people talk about imposter syndrome, and and uh, so, <laughs> do you ever feel out of your depth? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. sometimes. Um, I, I think one thing that I've learned is just because I didn't go to high school, just because I didn't go to university doesn't mean I'm not smart. I just yeah. didn't have that that course and that opportunity. I've, I've realized even though I never knew it, I'm, I'm very good at maths. So you yeah. know, I can do numbers in my head. I can compete quicker with numbers than most people with the calculator. I, I don't know. It's a gift I never knew I had until I got into this side of the business, which is Obviously, it's pretty important to be able to read an income statement and a balance sheet. So yeah. um, that's something that you know I, I've learned over the years, and I would say I'm very competent in that area. But you know, one thing I learned a long time ago, and uh, I think it's the key to success, is hire people or work with people who are smarter than you, or hire people that know things that you don't know. If you just hire people that know the same as you, then you're not growing. The organization's not growing. So yeah. that's okay. And you know, to me, being a leader is not about being the best at, at everything. It's about getting the best out of everybody, right? It's it's about yeah. raising the level of the organization around you. And at John Paul Mitchell Systems, we've got a lot of talented people we love to promote from within. But recently, especially on the executive team, I where I felt we had gaps and where I felt there was areas maybe that, that we needed some expertise, we went and hired it. And we, we've added some terrific people to the team. Mm. That uh, yeah, in areas are smarter than me for sure, absolutely. Mm. Okay, uh, that I makes it stronger. Makes it yeah, stronger. Exactly. You can't yeah. all be geniuses in every area of the business. You know, no way you're strong, no way you need help, and and, and ask for it. <laughs> it's, it's it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know we've got limited time, and I'm just looking at my question list here and thinking, okay, what are the most important ones? Uh, so we're going to have to have short answers on some of these. Okay. Um, uh, what's your biggest strength? I think you might have just answered it. I think relationships. I yeah. think relationships, follow-up. I've really yeah. always tried to always keep my word and always follow up. If I say I'm going to do something, do it. The amount of people, especially at high levels, that'll tell you one thing and then they don't follow up, it's really kind of a – it's it's a bug for me. If people yeah. do that, I really think – especially anybody on on – on our team, I, I really try and instill that importance to follow up. If it's an email, you need to get back to that person within 24 hours. Even if it's a, I don't have the answer, I'll get back to you. Just, it's so many of the little things to me make such a big, big difference. Yeah. Okay. What what drives you? I'm competitive. I'm, I'm ambitious. I, you know, I've, I've always, I would say, if you asked me 31 years ago, you, are you going to move to America and be the president? No, it, it was never on my radar. I yeah. always looked at, I always looked at what's next. What's the next hurdle? Yeah. And I think that's important for somebody young in their career. You know, it's okay to dream and look for an end goal. Absolutely. But don't spend all your time looking on the end, spend the next of the time looking what's the next run on the ladder. You know, how can you go to the next level? And you'd be surprised if you just focus you know, we're all busy today. We're all multitasking. I mean, I have a million things on my desk and people have asked me, how do you keep them all juggling? You see my name juggling, Jason. Yeah. Um, 
just just do one thing at a time, cross it off your list, and move on to the next. Because okay. if you try and do several things at the same time, you end up either doing a poor job or not really finishing anything. So yeah, what what, what do you wish you were better at? Updos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm all fingers and thumbs with those curvy uh, grips and bobby pins. Okay, yeah, not 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 so good at that. So, Jason, one thing I want to ask you about was having hairdressers in the you know, corporate setting, because I know that that in head office of John Paul Mitchell Systems, that you got quite a few people that come from a hairdressing background, not least yourself, but um, now they have, you know, very senior positions uh, in a corporate setting. So how important is that to the company? I think it's vital, to be honest, uh, Anthony, especially, I mean, our end customers is hairdressers. So I think having hairdressers in uh, positions within the company where they can influence decision-making is, is crucial. Uh, I think you really have to be able to understand the customer and who better to understand the customer than somebody that's been the customer and, and being behind the chair. And the end of the day, our mission is always to make salons and stylists as successful as possible. So I think it's really important to keep that connection. And it's not common in large corporations where they have hairdressers and influential positions. And I, I think it's vitally important that you have people with MBAs and training in business. But I think the hybrid approach of having those people working in synergy together is, is the way to go. Uh, it certainly uh, helped John Paul Mitchell Systems. And every, every company I've been involved with, I've been blessed and fortunate enough that they've understood the importance of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think it's amazing. It's fantastic. Um, you, you've talked about, you know, a couple of different people, uh, you know, during the course of the podcast so far, and I know we can talk about some others in a minute, um, but these people have obviously had a big influence on you. So I want to ask you, how important is it to have mentors in your career? I think it's vitally important. I, I think as you progress through your career, you have to be like a sponge and absorb from the people around you. And I, I think you're never the finished article. You're, you're always learning, you're always absorbing, and you're always being mentored. Uh, but there are those people that come along in your career that are a little bit more than, than just everyday mentors. They're really, they change your life. Uh, yeah. and, and I've been, I've been blessed to have a few people like that in my career that I've been uh, fortunate enough to, to stop what I was doing and really absorb everything I could from, the moment or the, the time I had with that person. Yeah. So, well, let me ask you about them. I mean, obviously the first one, um, you know, family aside, um, is is uh, the John English. I mean, I don't know the man. I've, I'd heard the name, but I don't know anything about him. But he obviously had a big effect on you uh, as a young man. I mean, you were going to go and work in a little barbershop and all of a sudden, you know, 10 years, less than 10 years later, you're, you're running a, a salon group with, with uh, I think you said 22 salons and I forget how many staff, but I mean, that is a big business. So, you know, what, what, what was the most important lesson that you got from, from John English as a, as a mentor? I think right from the go, uh, the standard at John English was very important. Uh, having pride in every single thing that you do, discipline uh, as your approach to the craft of hairdressing, uh, and that, that followed right through. So I remember in, in my early days training uh, in model night, you know, doing nine section perm wines and thinking I've done a good job. I'd already had a long day at the end of the day and take them out and do them again. 
well, it, 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 it looks great. Yeah. It's not perfect. Until it's perfect, you're not going home. And I remember at the time, at first, feeling very frustrated, but the discipline that built in me was, you know, it was incredible. And it's something that uh, I've carried with me throughout my career. Is if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Yes, I've got, I've got a quote a little bit like that. It's how you do anything is how you'll do everything. That's you right. know, and it's a really good discipline, isn't it? I used to say to, to, to young apprentices, I can tell how well you'll cut hair by how well you sweep the floor. And and they used to laugh at me, I mean, and deservedly, but right. but there is some truth in it, isn't there? You know, it's like if you're going to yeah. do a job, do it properly. So, Absolutely. okay. Um, what, what about the, the, the next guy you, you've mentioned was uh, Farouk. Uh, again, yeah. I don't know him, but I know the name. Uh, what was the most important thing that you, you took away from your time with him? What was a you know, one nugget that you'd say was the greatest lesson that you got from working with him? I think if I was to sum it up in one sentence, it would be just anything's possible. You can do anything with your life if you put your mind to it. There's re- the only limitations in life are those which you place upon yourself. That's, you know, I think that's that's an important lesson. I'd, I'd never really thought that I could fly like that before until I met Farouk. He, he took me from being an ambitious, hardworking young man to being somebody that, felt like I, I could do anything if I just worked hard. Mm. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, you know, moment, that realization, isn't it? Uh, and and then obviously uh, at John Paul Mitchell Systems, I know that, you know, the position that you've now got that, you know, the last, you know, couple of years or more, you, you've been groomed or worked very closely with with Luke Jacobellis uh, uh, and John Paul DeJoria, obviously. What, what's been the most important, you know, thing that you've got from Luke? Yeah, Ali, there's, there's, there's so many from Luke. I mean, I, I was a pretty experienced uh, manager of, of responsibilities and people when I when I joined John Paul Mitchell Systems, and I felt like, uh, you know, I, I was at a pretty high level. However, what I've learned from Luke, you, you know, you, you probably can't find in a business school, in a book, and it's, mm. it's just the wisdom that he has from having um, such experience and tenure in his role. Um, I mean, he's... He's been in place in, in the role of president of John Paul Mitchell Systems for over 25 years. And, um, you know, th- that kind of knowledge only comes with experience. And I felt like he's been very uh, forthcoming and sharing how he would approach certain things and handle things. And mm. I think that's helped me accelerate to a, a level of which would probably have taken a lot longer on my own. Uh, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. You know, constantly in our, our position, we're presented with things where we're, we're kind of forced to make decisions and that's fine. And I think it's important to be convicting and, and, and make decisions as, as a leader. But uh, Luke's fine saying, I'm not ready to make a decision. You know, let me sleep on it is, is, is something that he always says. And I, it's, it's wise, you know, if, you, if you're not 100% sure, sleep on it. You know, it, sleeping on it takes emotion out of it. It gives you time to kind of collect your thoughts, think about it from from all sides and, and make a better decision. So that's that's a really great nugget that's a simple thing, but it's really helped me. And, you know, the amount of times I would have made one decision, but then I've remembered what Lucas shared with me and I've, I've said to myself, you know what, I this is the way I'm leading, but let me think about it. Let me sleep on it and I'll come back to you. And the amount of times you have a different feeling about it the day after, it, mm. it's, it's incredible. So that's, that's a good one. And I think it can apply to, to life in general. Uh, it's not just yeah. a, 
leadership. Um, and then another saying that Luke has, he actually has it on his desk on a plaque. I think it comes from Ronald Reagan, but it's uh, trust but verify. And <laughs> basically the essence of, of that sentence means, listen, don't micromanage your team, hire good people, set them up for success, trust them. But you know, you, you've got to verify that they're doing a good job. And how do you do that? And and one thing I've learned from Luke is how he handled it and managed it so well over the years is um, he would dig into the detail every now and then on random parts of that person's responsibilities. And I can tell you, as as the person who's being asked, you're like, wow, he's asking me about this small area of the business and, and he wants to know. Like, it, it keeps you on your toes in a good way. Mm. It's, yeah. not, uh, it's not where you feel like you're being smothered or stranglehold. But uh, it, it lets you know that he's looking and it lets you know that he has a certain level and an expectation that you are on top of your business. And I, I think that's just a great bit of advice for anybody that's new to or has been uh, running you know, people for a long time. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's really a good one. Yeah. Okay. So... And then, and then the big question is about John Paul de Jouria. I mean, I think, I think when anyone meets him, they're sort of slightly in awe, you know, because yeah. they know how successful he is. But he's also got a, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's something that you bring to it or if it's something that he has. But he has an aura about him, an energy about him yeah. that is, is intriguing. So, so what, what about John Paul? What, what's the biggest sort of, you know, lesson that you've got from him? How has he mentored or molded you? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing about JP is he always makes you feel like you're the most important person in the room. And I, I think that's, a, that's, that's just a terrific way to, to be in life. And uh, it shows that he is super focused on your well-being. And the result of that is you love the guy, you'll do anything for the guy, and you work very hard. I really believe that it helps with productivity. Um you know, every time John Paul sees you, how are you? How's your family? Is there anything I can do for you? I mean, this this is a guy that is a multi-billionaire that has so many things going on. And it doesn't matter who you are, uh, what level you are in the company. He wants to know you. He wants to help you. And he wants to make sure it's very important to him. And he sleeps well at night if he knows his people feel appreciated. Same thing with his customers. Same thing with his distributors. He has, he's all about relationships. And, you know, that's, again, something else that I've learned from Luke. And I, I kind of knew it already, but it's just really in, instilled in me that the importance of how you treat other people. I mean, we're, we're in a product business or we're in the service business, but it's, we're in the people business. And, you know, mm -hmm. everything's about relationships and, the, and, 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 and people tick on emotion and how you make them feel can have a great, positive or negative effect on them. So JP is a master of, of getting people to, to pull together and work as a team for a common goal. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. Whenever you meet someone or read about someone or whatever, who's, who's hyper successful, you're always looking for what is it that sets them apart. And, and often it's just staring you in the face, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not it's not like some secret ingredient. It's like be nice to people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing. Okay, the 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 company, um, you know, John Paul Mitchell Systems, and particularly John Paul, have always been driven by social and environmental causes. Going forward, what are some of the things 
that, you know, as a company you're going to do to make the world a better place? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you asked me about that, Anthony. So one of the things that attracted me to the company the most was its commitment to the professional space and the fact that they, you know, they want to give back, um, whether it's giving back to people, giving back to the planet, giving back to our industry, and they want to make the world a better place. And and John Paul Mitchell Systems, since we were founded in 1980, is, is to me has always been the gold standard. They never tested on animals way before it was trending to not test on animals. They've always yeah. given back. J- JP's always cared about the planet. He's always been uh, very involved philanthropically with lots of uh, causes that help the planet. So that's always been in our DNA. And it's great to see that consumer awareness and stylist awareness is at an all-time high with a sustainability and not testing on animals. And so what we decided at John Paul Mitchell Systems is, is we, we, we need to now take it to the next level. So in 2020, towards the end, uh, third quarter, we launched a new sustainability pledge, which you can go on our website, paulmitchell.com to check out just what we're doing. And it's really uh, reinforcing what we've already been doing, as well as making some commitments and pledges uh, in some different areas. So you'll see um, on the website that we're making a commitment in plastics. We're currently in the process of moving all our plastic bottles and components to PCR, post-consumer recycled material. Um, we're also, we, we launched a new line of products called Clean Beauty, which are using uh, a revolutionary bioplastic, which is made from sugarcane. So it's renewable. Uh, mm-hmm. And it also, sugarcane that's planted helps offset carbon uh, footprints as well as it's recyclable. So we're, we're really trying from a packaging standpoint to leave the planet in a better way than we found it and uh, reduce the amount of plastic being dumped into the ocean and into landfills, et cetera. Uh, we've also for a long time now been planting trees. We've planted over 1 million trees uh, in rainforests throughout the world to help offset our carbon footprint. Uh, we're also relying less on, on conventional energy methods. Uh, we have complete solar power. It's our main uh, manufacturing plant. Um, in Santa Clarita, California. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of things to, to make a big difference. We're also looking for as clean ingredients as possible for new products that we're introducing, as well as looking at how we can uh, find clean manufacturing processes to, to make the world as clean as possible moving forward. And, of course, we always have been committed to not testing on animals, and that continues uh, very much for us moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting what you said at the beginning there about the way you actually worded it. But, you know, very recently I had someone, a coaching client I was working with, and during COVID he said to me, you know, Anthony, I've had time to reassess my business and who I do business with. And he said, it's just struck me that my my supplier doesn't share the same values that I do. And so just on that, on the strength of that, he changed his entire business, you know, to a different supplier. I mean, okay, he went to Paul Mitchell, but, uh, and that's a fantastic thing. Uh, and it was based on a company that had the same values as him. And I, I think that that is becoming more and more important every single day. I mean, just uh, two days ago, I watched uh, Sea Spiracy, the movie. I don't know if you've, have you seen it yet? I have. Okay. okay. Well, you know, that featured on the movie is the, uh, What's what's the boat that John Paul? Sea Shepherd. 
Sea Shepherd, you know, the Sea Shepherds on on the movie, um, you know, and all the good that they're doing. Uh, and I know that John Paul puts in a, a King's Ransom to keep that thing afloat. Uh, yeah. And then I got another one. I haven't even seen it yet. It's called Kiss the Ground. I got a, a promotion through on that. Yeah. Uh, another movie on Netflix, and and I know that JP and Angus are both, uh, uh, you know, executive producers uh, behind that. So, I mean, these things are that they make a a big difference. And you know, I mean, I've been in the industry a long time. I knew that Paul Mitchell had a bit of a history in that area, but I didn't even nearly know how big a, a, a contribution that's made. Often, a lot of it's anonymous, isn't it? All, all the philanthropy. Yeah, I mean, that's. JP is a very private guy, you know, he, he does a lot, he gives a lot, but he asks for nothing in return and doesn't publicize it. But, mm. you know, for me, we're, I always say, well, not just me, anybody that joins Paul Mitchell, we're the best kept secret in the industry. Like we need to do a better job of letting people know, you know, what we're about and all the things that we do on behalf of hairdressers. Cause that's, that's what JP says. Everything that he does, he, he does it for the planet, but he does it on behalf of the, he feels of, a responsibility to represent our industry and uh, he mm. does it so beautifully and he doesn't ask for anything in return but uh, mm. you know th there's a lot of companies that are that's really their whole marketing angle is we're sustainable we give back we which is great and we love that but we've never kind of tooted our own horn on that but uh, i i really think it's time that the consumers and salons and stylists alike know what we're about know what's behind the bottle that it's mm. more, we're more than just a product company. We're, we're a company of caring, compassionate people who really each and every day try and do the right thing. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, let's just talk a little bit about the future before we uh, wrap things up. Um, what do you think, uh, as a, a hairdresser and someone who has a vested interest in the, you know, the viability of hairdressing salons, et cetera, what, what do you think about the changing business models uh, and how does that impact on the new routes to market for professional product going forward? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of change. There was a lot of change before COVID in our industry. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's two ways to look at change. You can be scared about it or you can embrace it. And I, I prefer the latter of those two. I, I think as a manufacturer, as a distributor, as a salon owner, as a stylist, you have to adapt and move with the times. It's, 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 uh, it's something if you don't adapt, then you can quickly get left behind. And, you know, um, unfortunately in our industry, there's, there's some salons that uh, maybe haven't adapted quickly enough and, and, and they have really felt the pinch. I, I think uh, what's important is, you know, from a manufacturer standpoint, is we find ways to serve salons and stylists in this new changing environment and landscape. And it's not, we're not going to be able to service them the same way as we used to. Uh, same thing for distributors. Uh, I think not gone are the days, but uh, definitely changed are the days where a distributor can survive on just having sales consultants that knock on salons' doors and take orders. I think distributors have to have an omni-channel, um, which gives you know salons and stylists a way to order products, you know, the way that's convenient for them. Uh, so that's a combination of having a salesperson, having a brick and mortar store, having a B2B e-commerce solution. And I think it's important, um, you know, that all distributors gravitate and get to that place. Um, I think it, as a manufacturer, uh, you know, we, we have to make sure that we have the right go-to-market strategy to support salons and stylists across the country. I, I think we've seen a, a, a migration of, 
medium-sized salons breaking up and going to a lot of independent salons in uh, the US anyway. And I am hearing that that's happening across Europe. You've seen a lot of mobile hairdressers, uh, yeah. which, you know, I mean, you can, you can say we don't like that. We preferred it when everybody was together, when they were all in, but it's, it's what's happening. So how do you, mm. how do you, uh, how do you account for that? How do you support that? Uh, those hairdressers have needs just the same as hairdressers that are in a salon. Obviously doing trainings is going to be difficult if the salon has one chair. It doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint for a distributor to call on or educate a one chair salon with a physical presence. Yeah. So you, you have to do, you know, LMS, learning management software. You have to have e-learning. Uh, you have to do cluster events. There's, from a support standpoint, you, you, you have to look at it differently. I think with John Paul Mitchell Systems, we're, we're looking at everything. And I think the future, maybe gone are the days or not gone are the days, but we need to add another element of inventory in a salon. You know, salons and stylists, you know, have retail racks usually and they fill them with products and, and sell them. I think in the future, I think you're going to see some salons doing that, but I think you're going to see other salons offering virtual inventory through, mm -hmm. through a digital shelf. And yeah. again, that's, that's important. And I think for an independent salon or even a larger salon, there's a lot that's appealing about that and not mm -hmm. having all the cash tied up in physical inventory that's perhaps not turning that fast, being yeah. able to offer, you know, a much more broader selection of products, which mm -hmm. are tied to, you know, technology with a professional recommendation that can be shipped directly to the consumer at home. So a lot of this is, is happening. We're seeing an evolution towards this, but it, mm. I, I wouldn't say we're there yet. And I'm, and I'm not sure what the future of salons looks like. Listen, mm. I, I would say this. There's always going to be people who, who need hairdressers and, and salons. Mm. Uh, we're, we're always going to be able to, I don't think, I don't see us being replaced by robots to cut hair and, and color mm. hair. Uh, so I think we're always going to be able to provide a service as hairdressers. Um, it's, it's going to be different now. I think you're going to see probably chain salons staying around, you know, the big, larger chains that, you know, can ride out, you know, the pandemic and stay strong enough. And I think you may continue to see um, a lot more independent salon, one chair salon suites, because I think that's just the way it's going to gravitate for right now. But who knows where it's going to be in five, 10 years, you might see, you know, some of those salons popping back up again. But uh, the one thing that's going to be is we're going to need hairdressers. And the one thing that concerns me, Anthony, is I think I've heard from a lot of salons and uh, a lot of people during the pandemic took long breaks off work and they decided that maybe they don't want to come back into this industry, which which is sad. But the, the thing which is great and very encouraging for John Paul Mitchell Systems is we have 115 schools and we're seeing um, – admissions going through the roof there's lots of people that want to come into our industry so well, that's great so you know yeah. i think the future looks bright i don't think uh it's we we just have to you know we have to adapt I yeah, think if yeah. We adapt we'll, we'll be fine yeah i'm sure you saw uh last week in the news all about the amazon uh salon in, salon london. in london yeah yeah um what do you think about that? I mean, that's created a lot of jumping up and down on Clubhouse, et cetera. There's a lot of it, – it's interesting. It's not all negative, you know. No. Um, no. It, it's – a lot of people are quite sort of, um, you know, standing back and taking a good overview of it and looking for the opportunities which exist in it. Um, 
What, what, what are your thoughts about, you've already sort of answered this. I was going to say, what are your thoughts about the product distribution model of the future? Uh, and I think you've pretty much, you know, just covered that and what you've said that, you know, you need to have a, a more omni-channel approach because uh, the business model of salons is changing completely. Um right. And, uh, you know, I know that, I mean, most of our listeners or half of our listeners are in the United States, so they'll be familiar with the fact of the Amazon model and that there is a professional uh, division of Amazon that Paul Mitchell and many other brands are on. And that it's, I mean, I think it's been good for the industry that because it's cleaned it up instead of having all these, you know, I, I know the statistic, I was told that you had something like two and a half thousand people selling uh, Paul Mitchell products on Amazon and that the, the deal that was done was that um, uh, that you would sell through Amazon on the basis that you were the only a point of access for professional Paul Mitchell products. Uh, right. So you got rid of all the two and a half thousand and that they couldn't undercut salons. Uh, right. So I think both of those things are, are, are fantastic. It's like looking at what does the consumer want and, and what are Amazon really good at? They're really good at distribution and logistics. There's no getting around it. So if that can work for salons and work for consumers and work for you, you've got to, you know, find a way through it. Um, any, any, you, again, I was going to say to you, you know, what do you imagine the industry will look like in 10 years? Again, you've, you've, you've pretty much touched on that. Um, when we talk about products for a second, what do you think the future is for products? What sort of, products do you think that there'll be in five years or 10 years? What sort of, you know, off the wall things are, are, are being, you know, conjured up in people's heads as, and this is what the future looks like. Yeah. I, I think one of, one of the areas that's very interesting and I think is limitless is personalization. Um, yeah. I, I think more and more people want something that's tailored to them. So the more that brands can offer personalization solutions, I think they're going to get more loyalty and, uh, I, I think personalization is difficult. It's, it's difficult to scale. You know, mm. there's, there's some companies that are doing it already, uh, but uh, the, the, the process is, is, is not easy yet for, for the end consumer. Once that's figured out, I think that personalization space within beauty, not just, beauty, not just hair care, but within beauty in general, there's, there's personalization opportunities for skincare, hair care, um, mm. Lots of different products where people can go in, they can answer a simple quiz and something can be tailored specifically for their needs. And I, I, I do see that as, as something that's uh, it's going to be a growing segment for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. All righty. Well, listen, uh, we, I know we've, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time. I really want to uh, thank you. I know it's hard for you to carve a, uh, an hour and a half or whatever it is out of your day to do this. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast with Jason Yates, then please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, so to wrap up, Jason, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the uh, Grow My Salon Business podcast. I love the fact that I can, you know, ask you all these questions, whereas under normal circumstances, it would probably be inappropriate. So it's good to, it's good to yeah. put you on the spot and uh, and to get you to open up and and share your your story. I learned a lot of things about your background myself, and uh, it, it gets more impressive every time. So, Jason Yates, thank you very much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Thanks, Anthony. It's a pleasure being on. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.